Enterprise Management 360, your main source for tech news, analysis, podcasts, and videos for the enterprise. Hello, and welcome to this EM360 podcast. I'm Scott Taylor, the Data Whisperer, and I'm delighted to be your host for this podcast series. I'm the principal consultant at MetaMeta Consulting. We help organizations tell their data story by reinforcing the strategic value of proper data management. In this podcast, I'll be welcoming back Jan Kunick, CTO EMEA at Cloudera, who joined us in our third episode looking at the architectural implementation of hybrid and multi-cloud deployment. For this episode, we'll be talking about what is needed to set apart a modern data warehouse pass in the cloud from the traditional warehouse solutions. Hello, Jan, and welcome back to the broadcast. Hello, Scott, and thanks for having me back. To start off, what can you tell us about the differences between the traditional warehouse solutions and modern data warehouse pass? Sure. Traditional warehousing is the world of large monolithic appliances and databases and tables in SQL. Structured query language is, of course, still a very important tool, but the conversation in the cloud has shifted more towards expressing data warehousing as value in data from analytics, which can come about in many ways and forms. The prime example of value from data is still the early morning sales report. But aside from those classic, actually often pretty basic business intelligence queries, the exact same data the warehouse data nowadays has often been pre-processed by a Spark-based transformation job, has been queued up and transposed in actually a scripting language like Python and one of its frameworks like Pandas or NumPy. And that ultimately enables new and more valuable operational SQL-based reports. So the key in doing warehousing in the cloud is to bring it all together into a data lake, still retain the SLAs around the operational reports, but at the same time being able to use the very same data from multiple factions and multiple parties, the ingestion, the data engineering, and the data science team to work on that data together and unlock new value from that data. So for this to work, you can't afford your warehouse to be just a data silo. Despite the promise of breaking down data silos, most cloud-based data warehouses still require data copies in proprietary formats. And another important aspect that many traditional warehouses on-premises, they come in form of these appliances that combine compute and storage in a very tightly coupled fashion in order to achieve those very SLAs that you need. For example, that report needs to be done every morning before 7. So most cloud-based pass solutions are now coming in the form of disaggregating the query engine and the actual data set. But most importantly, you know, this is required thus, is that you separate the metadata as well so that the compute capabilities can be completely suspended because you may not need them at some points in time or you may want to simmer them down. And the trick here is then to still, while you disaggregate compute and storage and metadata, to maintain strong security and governance in the cloud. So it sounds like from a business perspective, it's really valuable that you can run your kind of basic sales reports, like you said, every morning, the quarterly reports, whatever you need, and yet use, as you mentioned, the same data to do some of these more theoretical, experimental activities in data science. 
this is really where the value lies and where you improve on some of your reporting gradually and incrementally. And having a person who is a, a data specialist, a statistician, a data scientist, they do want to have that live data. And it's very hard to approach a person who runs an operationally mission-critical data warehouse for business intelligence reports that have been tested for a long time, approach him and just tell him, I need that live data, I need that curated data that you really operate on in order to come up with a new kind of prediction, a new kind of model that I'm working on that I want to meld into a new operational report. It's virtually impossible to get that data warehouse admin who's got a job to jeopardize his own SLAs in order to enable that innovation. But at the same time, innovation is super important as well. And it sounds like it gets rid of a lot of that sort of munging and wrangling work that data scientists are always complaining about because they're using the really well-structured, trusted data that's already operational for some of these innovative activities. That as well. And they may want to wrangle much more with the data. And then they are actually allowed to create derivative data sets. The problem here is then also the management of the metadata and the schemas. You want to be able to simply fork that off as well. And again, if you have your data in a monolithic proprietary appliance where also the data format is often proprietary, you have no chance but to really vary that very same monolithic data warehouse or batch slash ask for some quota on that data warehouse. Yeah, so it really brings this horizontal value. That's that's great as a foundation. You know, sort of looking back historically, what are some of the major evolutions of this process and how has it impacted organizations and their approach to data? With this, we can go very, very wide, but maybe let's focus on how much planning again got into warehousing in the past. Onboarding a new tenant was a very carefully planned operation. Schema evolutions were super, super dangerous and risky. At some point, the growth of warehousing just became cost prohibitive, right? So a warehouse of 100 terabyte would just blow your IT budget. So the result was that a lot of storage, even in warehousing, would get put in other kind of storage solutions so that you would basically limit how much you could go back in time. Big data revolution brought scalability to beyond hundreds of terabytes and even the petascale range for warehousing. But it kind of stopped short with the whole desire of elasticity and infrastructure efficiency in enterprise IT. Because in most enterprise IT organizations, IT is a cost center. So cloud-based virtualization remedied lots of that. And we still see organizations slowly adopting that as a remedy. And that widespread usage of the cloud finally brings together both slowly, the ability to work with infrastructure very, very scalably, but then also in, in an elastic way. But then we are now at this inflection point where virtualization is more than just you know virtual machines, where you actually start using containers as a means to virtualize, to not bring up new capacity within minutes or within maybe half an hour, but actually within seconds as very influx goes up. And that union of virtualization and massive scalability is exactly what we at Cloudera refer to as the enterprise data cloud. So it's that massive scalability that the big data era has enabled enterprise IT to do uh, combined with unlimited elasticity via container technology. So Jan, that's really interesting there. So what benefit does container technology have in your data warehouse? For example, 
container technology in data warehousing reduces wait times for queries to complete, since new executors from the query engine can be started for query fragments. They're spun up within a couple of seconds if you do it right. Also, onboarding of a new and isolated tenant, so with isolated, I mean the tenant is not disturbed by any noisy neighbors, or the tenant himself does not disturb mission-critical workload. So that onboarding of a new tenant only takes you a couple of minutes. This also unlocks campaign-based query bursting, either on-premises with private cloud technology or in public clouds or in hybrid setup where you have warehouse technology on-premises but then burst via container technology into a cloud with the very same query engine. This is a way to make things happen on the one hand for users but also to protect the TCO. It gives your end users the SLAs that they demand isolating against noisy neighbors and allows you to judge where to make that bursting happen and for how long exactly, and then to simmer it down again. You talk about bursting and a lot of this great technical capability. If I'm a business user, you know, I think Kubernetes is a character from Star Wars. So how do you start to really articulate the benefits of this to the end users? That's a great question. And while even a lot of the uh, users and developers in IT certainly know about Kubernetes. It, this is very much an operational topic, and it's super important to just say, what's the benefit for me? Why do I want that solution that leverages Kubernetes underneath and containerization? So yeah, let's maybe work with an example. So let's say we have two project leads. One is from the finance team, and let's say the other one is from the marketing team. So they come forward to the IT team and they reconcile their allowed budgets on the data warehouse platform with the IT team. And with budgets, I mean, really, I have this much money and I know I'm going to need so-and-so much query throughput. Plus, at Christmas, I have a campaign coming up where I want to predict what kind of shoe models I want to sell to all of our customers, to, to the new email campaign that I'm going to send out. And so the finance project manager says, you know, I have my mission critical reports. Those need to get done once every morning. I have a lot of ad hoc business. And then I also have this end of quarter report where I just really need double the capacity. So these kinds of business requests that should directly translate into, well, a prediction of uh, whether that budgets that they have, that they suffice. And then further on into delegated permissions and quota in a management console for your data warehouse in the cloud, in a public cloud, or in the private cloud. Then these project leads would actually go back and for their sub-teams, they would create data warehouses in a self-service fashion. And this is exactly what we do in our Cloudera data warehouse experience, by the way. So the IT lead doesn't need to worry about where he gets the underlying infrastructure and how exactly the two project leads are deploying warehouses and how they're slicing and dicing their cloud compute resources. But he focuses on advising where cloud bursting resources are available at good price points. And what he will worry about is creating permissions and also maybe column level filters for the data sets and questions. Together with the project leads and compliance staff and potentially also, of course, synchronizing the data and the metadata to the cloud. In our case, this process, which is still a lot of work to do, is facilitated by 
the Caldera shared data experience, right? So let's say the project lead and the finance project accordingly have deployed a long-running warehouse that is needed for the daily reports, must not be affected by any noisy neighbors, while he then goes ahead and deploys a smaller warehouse for end-of-quarter reports and explorative BI. And that warehouse then grows and shrinks and is directly passed on to the finance team's budget. That chargeback mechanism is in place directly and the finance team basically pay what they use. In addition, the marketing team wants access to the very same data that the finance team is using for exploratory BI as well and the campaign to make predictions around the products for the end customers. And they combine this data with their own data set. So the marketing team provisions their data warehouse and they will not affect any of the data warehouse technology that got deployed by the finance team. And that will scale up and down as seasonal marketing campaigns intensify or also simmer down. They augment their own data and access as a set of allowed columns and tables from the central data warehouse data and their own data set. And again, that access is centrally and collaboratively managed based on programmatically defined policies. In our case, within Cloudera SDX. So a couple of important notions there, scalability, elasticity, being able to use the same data. A lot of these themes keep coming up and I think those resonate no matter where you are in an organization. You know, you mentioned this term, noisy neighbors. Take me through that. What do you mean by noisy neighbors? I've got some, but I'd love to know what you mean. <laughs> of course, of course, right. Yeah. So this is, uh, th this is something that we have a lot of times brought to us by our customers. It refers to really very A, affecting the runtime of query B. Ah. So if you share the query execution engine, then this happens very often. So for example, the query execution engine needs to look at data statistics that it computes stats that it has generated across a certain table. And then when it decides whether I'm letting on a certain query or not, it has to make a prediction of whether it can still accommodate this while not fatally affecting the other query. So that is something that is sometimes hard for a query engine to predict, especially if you scan and search across dozens of terabytes in a single query. So the way that we at Cloudera think is much better is to actually spawn a unique instance of the very same query engine for that. So it kind of really builds a fence around the individuals in a certain team where they will still share a query engine and other organizations that just do not want to be affected by those other teams by using their own query engine. You still, on the underlying infrastructure, need to share some of those capabilities, but really cloud economics and the economies of scale in public clouds take away a lot of that from you. And it really boils down to you know, the maximum limits of the infrastructure that you rarely ever hit if a cloud availability zone and a region is built out properly. So these queries and these activities don't really disturb each other anymore. So you don't have the technical equivalent of banging on the ceiling with a broomstick saying, keep it down over there. So it's nice that, as you said, sort of build a fence, separate them a little bit and let these activities run undisturbed from each other. Exactly. And container technology really allows you to spin up that additional environment within a matter of seconds, while you can reuse all of the schema definitions, all of the table definitions by having that metadata in that deliberate extra entity, what we call shared data experience, right? So the metadata is put in some metadata store and spinning up a new query engine 
is basically the same thing as in the past, letting on an additional query to the same query engine. So how does containerization in a platform as a service offering lead to cloud native flexibility? That's a good question. I mean, first of all, I would like to address that term cloud native specifically. It's often interpreted as developed by cloud provider X or by cloud only software vendor Y, but, but that's a, a bit of business bias in there and that's okay. But if you dig deeper, you want to come to how does that really give my teams in IT and business user side more flexibility. And then you quickly discover the IT industry's definition is actually slightly different. Cloud native precisely means the use of containerization technologies like Docker and Kubernetes in combination because it gives you the flexibility, A, to treat every cloud implementation like AWS, Azure, or Google Cloud exactly the same or at least in a very similar fashion. And the reason for that is that they all offer Kubernetes services. This is something that the industry just expects nowadays. So none of these providers can afford to not have a Kubernetes implementation. And that in turn allows organizations to use this as an abstraction layer when they build their own applications. And then we talked about this before, containers are the new form of virtualization, right? So Kubernetes is like a hypervisor in the past, like a virtual machine host, and it hosts those containers, which you can think of as virtual machine images. But in reality, they're much more slim. They're able to spin up within seconds rather than minutes. And so this also gives you that ability to go up and down depending on query influx very quickly. So before that, it may not have actually uh, worked very well to, to go up and down based on virtual machine technology, but with containerization, you really get that bang for the buck. Again, given this great flexibility of the business to do all these wonderful business-oriented things they want to do, but being able to do them at scale and supported by the same common data. So how can organizations leverage this for multi and hybrid cloud mobility for cloud spend? That's a good way to follow on to this, right? So again, cloud native doesn't really mean runs in a cloud. It runs in any cloud, also your own. And you use your own applications plus your pass layer, and specifically here your pass data warehousing layer. You want that to leverage the same thing as well so that you can really empower choice. If your pass layer supports containerization well, it can use the various Kubernetes engine out there as a layer of abstractions, and it reduces the portions that you need to recode if you want to change to a new set of infrastructure. Let's say if you want to switch the public cloud provider, or if you want to migrate even to a private cloud, or if you want to go from private cloud to the public cloud. And we've recently announced a large-scale partnership with IBM and Red Hat on their on-premises Kubernetes offering OpenShift. So hybrid cloud mobility and multi-cloud mobility really mean that, that you use that abstraction layer. And you can also really use that to keep costs under control, as said, via auto-scaling functionality. And it invests fundamentally also in open standards because the frameworks like Docker and uh, the container technologies underneath that, all of that is open source and all of that is where the industry is standardizing on. Yeah, and I want to dig a little deeper into that idea of open standards. So what role do they play in the mobility of queries and data and metadata? Very important question, Scott. Much more than most vendors would actually admit. 
I bet. <laughs> right, right. First of all, the data format of how rows and columns and data warehousing are structured is still where most offerings, even so-called cloud-native technology, turn super proprietary. And a couple of years ago, for example, there was a very influential paper by Google on a query system and thereby also a data format called Dremel, which many of us know. Reading that Dremel paper is really hard, so to understand what they're really solving there, but it inspired the invention of the Parquet open source data format, which happens to support, for example, both data warehousing and data engineering at scale in a superb way and very, very efficiently. It also enables super, super fast scanning in order to retrieve a certain record, in order to give you that extra edge on that where clause in your SQL query. So companies around the world, thousands of them, are relying on that Parquet data format to reduce the times where items in a SQL query can be retrieved at scale, whether that is in Spark, in Spark SQL, whether that is in, 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 in implementations of Hive as a data warehouse, or whether it is in Impala. This is a prime example of open source and open standards innovation. And today, Parquet is a prime citizen in many of those use cases. So the, the next level to this is open standards and tools around scalable governance, of course, and authorization to that data. We're satisfied with the investments and choices that we've made there around projects like Apache Ranger and Apache Atlas, which are open source and provide all the features and many more to make hybrid and multi-cloud governance at scale a reality for enterprises on top of these open data formats. So we see a ton of third-party software integrate with Apache Ranger and Apache Atlas in the form of plugins. And we see a ton of third-party tools. Lots of our competitors use Parquet, for example, as also their prime substrate of an open data format. You got to leverage standards wherever you can. I'm not sure why people don't, right? There's some certain edge cases and things that people don't really look for the standard, but I'm a big fan of those. And it's funny, you mentioned rows and columns. It's the way I describe data to a lot of folks. You still come back to that and columns are easy. It's the rows that are hard is the way I look at it. That's it, yeah. It's hard. Anybody can add a column, but when you start to align the rows, that's where the trouble happens. Just take two spreadsheets and go from there. So a lot of people can relate to that. From a business perspective, though, so what are some of the most important considerations to keep in mind when you're looking at a modern data warehouse pass? This is really where it all culminates, right? We do see a lot of the heavyweight undercurrent already being organized in open standards and open source formats. But then when it comes to relying on a report, there are still among business users some laser focus on saying, you know what, let's just get this done. From a business perspective, though, do take care about this undercurrent. The time and the money that often gets lost by implementing yet another point solution and by taking data from that heavy undercurrent stream of where the data is flowing and where the data also comes rest in a large data lake, taking that data and bringing it into a proprietary format unlocks value only for a certain time frame. It's going to be very hard and people are going to run for the hill when it comes to transporting value of those analyses from silos that got created anew from point solutions when bringing that value back to the larger organization. So for example, going back to the common data format, 
that can be easily accessed by other software frameworks. Coming back to that data scientist that wants to access that live data from the latest implementation of that warehouse. So that data scientist has two choices. Either get his own ODBC, JDBC connector hooked up to that warehouse and really chase down the warehouse admins, which is going to take him months to get permissions on that data warehouse and to get allowances. And data scientists need a lot of throughput and a lot of exploratory queries. So that's going to cost money and time and may, in, in a worst case scenario, even impact SLAs horribly on the live data warehouse. So invest in that open standard, build that data lake with open data formats on top of any cloud object storage, on top of our distributed file system offerings on premises, use a common context to manage the metadata and retain the ability to hire skill from the market that has already studied and learned about these open data formats, how to optimize queries on top of them that embrace this open innovation and open standards. That's key for enterprises tackling those data challenges from end to end, from the edge where they are uh, created to the place where artificial intelligence comes into play. Well, that's great advice there, Jan, and thank you so much again. We're going to close out this episode. I want to thank you for uh, joining us again. I always learn something when I talk to you, so wonderful hearing your perspective here. Make sure you check out our previous episodes, and in the next episode, we will continue our series as we speak with Jeff Fletcher, Senior Director of Product Management at Cloudera. We'll be discussing how experimenting is key when it comes to successful AI and ML projects. Until then, this is Scott Taylor, The Data Whisperer. Thanks again for listening. You've been listening to the EM360 Podcast. For more great content, head on over to em360tech.com. 